It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 241. We're talking about anemia. Anemia is defined as the reduction in red blood cell levels and is one of the most common problems in clinical practice. It affects almost a third of the people worldwide, corresponding to 1.9 billion cases. Yep, that's billion with a B. It is also the third most common cause of disability, behind only low back pain and depression. Red blood cells carry oxygen to tissues in the body so that they can do their job. When red blood cell levels are reduced, the overall oxygen carrying capacity is insufficient to meet the body's physiological needs. This can lead to a variety of symptoms, including fatigue, lack of concentration, shortness of breath, and even reduced exercise capacity. Today on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we'll cover the major points on anemia, including what it is, how it's diagnosed, its relevance in sport, treatment options, and much, much more. All right. As always, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. Uh, I'm doing all right. Not a ton of updates, I think, on my end from last time, but I'm sure you do from nationals, yeah? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, look, if you don't like powerlifting, you're not even like powerlifting curious, just mute the next maybe 120 seconds. This just isn't for you. But uh, Raw Nationals is put on by the uh, biggest powerlifting federation in the United States called USA Powerlifting or USAPL. I've been to every Raw Nationals since its inception, save for one. Wow, I didn't know that, actually. From 2011 to 2023, the only one I missed was 2016. That was intern year. And I believe that was in Atlanta. So, but every other one I've been to. And it was funny, in 2011 and 2012, it was held in a parish, like a church in Killing, Texas. There might have been, I don't know, 70 lifters total, uh, two platforms, whatever, on those days. It swelled in popularity, not only powerlifting. I mean, I think there was like 3,500 members in the USAPL back then. And, you know, a quarter of them might have been like referees, judges, technical controllers, you know, whatever. They didn't really participate in meets. But that was like the birth of raw powerlifting. And uh, for a bunch of different reasons, yeah, now, you know, they, I think they said they have almost 30,000 members these days. But the biggest raw nationals I've ever been to, I believe, was mega nationals in Vegas. I think they had over 1,500 participants. Um, that included, obviously, teens and juniors, masters, bench nationals, all this other sort of stuff. So that was kind of like a, an outlier. But in uh, Scranton in 2015 in Pennsylvania, they had 1,300 raw powerlifters. Just insane. So, yeah, this was uh, – they just held Raw Nationals last weekend uh, in Memphis, Tennessee. And, uh, yeah, went there, handled a few lifters, saw some other barbell medicine uh, coached athletes do really, really well on the platform. But not all the glitters is gold. And uh, I am really good at finding things to complain about. And, uh, well, here we go. So <laughs> the warm-up room was huge. Um, which is great. I think they had, I counted something like 20 some platforms for people to warm up on in the warm-up room, which is great because these sessions were huge. They had four platforms actively lifting at a time, so you had a bunch of different athletes competing. He, here's the thing. Powerlifters are not uh, the most, we'll just say like space-conscious individuals. People bring in huge bags or, you know, uh, uh, luggage things into the warm-up room with all their gear, all their crap, and it just explodes all over the place. And as a coach, I'm trying to run to the monitors to see, all right, when's my lifter coming up to time the warm-ups appropriately? I'm stepping over all sorts of stuff, everything from sour gummies to, you know, knee wraps, knee sleeves from 10 years ago. It's just it's just wild. So that was an issue. Uh, just why don't you put a monitor in the middle of the warm-up room? 
like don't put it all up front. Put one in the middle just for like the people in the la- the back in the back of the warm up room, so we don't have to like run across the room. That's thing one. Thing two. Texas Strength Systems is now the, uh, I guess, sponsor or affiliate equipment provider for the USAPL, and they just came out with some new calibrated kilo plates. Here's the thing. The plates themselves are super thin, which I guess is good if you're trying to load, you know, a thousand pounds on the bar, you have plenty of room. Uh, But the inner diameter of the plate is not machined to the correct tolerance to get on the sleeve. And so we were like, pushing hard on these sleeves and whatever. And now granted, you know, there are a few years of use. These are, they're probably gonna be fine. But for that meet, we're trying to do quick change loads and stuff to time the warmups appropriately and this, that, and the other. Ugh, some busted up knuckles for sure. But you know, if those are my biggest problems, I guess it's could fine. Be, could be worse. I will say the bench that they have there, oh my gosh, is fantastic. Oh, it might be the best nice. comp comp bench I've ever seen in my whole life. Like between the pad and it's, uh, you know, the gripper material on it, the the padding, the thickness, every, the width, excellent this job. A, this was a TSS bench? Yeah. No, so good for awful. them. I, I know. And just, <laughs> which brings me to another rant. Why aren't all benches created to the same specifications? What I mean by that is like flat benches. You know what I'm saying? You go to a commercial gym, they have like the fixed uprights or whatever. Those benches in general are narrower, lower. And the material is uh, not great. It's pretty slippery. It's like we – look, bench press is a competition standard movement in a sport. And we have specifications for those competition benches. Just use those specs. Just use those specs if you're, if you're manufacturing a bench. And uh, in any case, I've just been benching on these commercial gym benches now for the last few months. And uh, no me gusta. So – Anyway, I'm really good at finding things to complain about. I don't, you know, there were a lot of positives to, to yeah, take away. Sounds from. like our, our lifters did really well. <laughs> <laughs> they did. They did. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of some crazy stuff that I saw at Perkins, Austin Perkins in the 74 kilo class. I think he squatted 681 or something yeah, like that. I think he broke the record for both his own weight class and the weight class above him, which is remarkable. <laughs> Absolutely insane. Uh, Charlie, one of our coaches, Charlie Dixon, uh, had a return to the platform after a pretty serious uh, set of injuries. He squatted in about the same 680 something. Yep. Again, insane. Mm-hmm. And then out of nowhere decides to do conventional deadlifts and pulls, <laughs> you know, a conventional PR. Yeah, pretty pretty wild. But uh, yeah, the competition was fast and furious, really tight. And uh, overall, I'm pretty stoked on the state of powerlifting in the United States. It'd be great if there was a single unified sort of uh, organizational body. But, you know, I think when people disagree in the sport of powerlifting, instead of like working out the differences and compromising, they're like, ah, I'll start my own federation further fracturing the sport. And Yeah. I mean, on one hand, it sounds nice that for there to be one, you know, overarching organization, but I suspect in the alternate universe where there is just one, uh, there would be problems of your own in that situation where they're just, you know, completely overbearing and maybe they can do whatever they want with no competition and everybody complains about, oh, I wish there were other, you know, organizations doing things differently or better. So there's probably, you know, problems in that uh, counterfactual world, I suppose, too. Totally. Totally. Yeah. But it was a cool meet. Always love going to nationals. In contrast to like powerlifting America's nationals, I mean, this thing was hype. They had all the music, the lights. It's uh, it's really a spectacle. And again, if you're if you're interested in powerlifting, you're getting into powerlifting, you're like, what what should be my goal be? Like make it to nationals, do the national meet, even if you're not going to compete for like a podium or whatever uh, uh, in your division. The, just the experience itself. 10 out of 10, 
would recommend. Uh, man, really, really cool. And uh, yeah, our lifters did really well. Leah uh, did well. Her clientele did well did uh, awesome. Patty Tabachi, she's a 50, is she 52 kilo? It's either 52 or 59. I forget whatever that weight class is. She pulled, she beat her own all time national record on deadlift by six kilos. She pulled 177 and a half, which is, uh, what is that? 392 or something like that. 391. Insane. I was like, I was trying to do the math on like what multiple of her body weight that was. And I was like, <laughs> she's basically an ant. She's yes. a human ant. Yeah. Insane. So yeah. Uh, if you get a chance, I think they're in Salt Lake city, Utah next year. So, which seems like a cool, a cool space to be. So yeah, if you're, again, you just listen to this and you're like, I want to get into powerlifting. Hey, that's a meet you can put on the books and uh, you'll have a good time. So all right, let's see what else. We had some upcoming seminars where this weekend we'll be in Los Angeles. I think we have one spot left. So if you're on the fence uh, about coming to a seminar, you want to come to a seminar, you can be in the LA area in uh, two days, three days. Hey, this weekend, we have our super seminar in Los Angeles. Check that out. Uh, all of that stuff is linked in the uh, show notes. Um, also, we'll be in Sacramento at Alan Thrall's gym, Untamed Strength, in October. And then we'll be in Australia, both uh, Perth and Sydney. Uh, in January of 2024. So if you'd rather go to Australia, we'll see you there. Hopefully we can, you know, see some koalas, see some kangaroos. I don't know. We went to Australia last time. I didn't see any of those things. So maybe we got to get out into the bush. Check that out. (laughs) And uh, finally, a request. If you have questions you want us to answer on the podcast, uh, again, maybe thinking about that mailbag sort of section or quack watch, or maybe both. Get some interesting claims you've come across on the internet. Send them to us, media at barbellmedicine.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, who knows? Maybe we'll uh, get a few uh, a few um, different sections going on here on the podcast. All right, Austin, I feel like this is your favorite topic only because you see it all the time. You talk about it all the time. I, I'd be curious when for anemia, how many of your lessons or, or like teaching sort of sessions with your students, with your residents, whatever, have to do with anemia? You got a percentage on that maybe off the top of your head? I mean, it's something that I have to teach every single month that I'm at work in the hospital because I have a fresh batch of people and we see patients who are anemic. I would say more more of my patients are anemic than are not when I'm working in the hospital. And so it's something that we need to pay attention to, address, comment on, sometimes even treat directly, whatever the case is. It is definitively not my favorite topic, but it is one that um, I have to be very comfortable with, comfortable with managing, teaching, um, and, uh, and handling uh, with patients who have symptoms and, and other complications from it. So yeah. Wait, do you have a favorite topic? Like, should we do a podcast on your favorite topic? Like, is it going to be liver <laughs> failure? Is it what is, what's it going to be? Oh man, uh, <laughs> tough to narrow it down. Uh, it is probably not going to be anemia. It's probably going to be something uh, complicated enough that is beyond the scope of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, look, if we end up doing a a, a podcast on, uh, you know heart failure or something like that, really get into the weeds. You'll know that that's actually Austin's <laughs> baby. <laughs> okay, so let's start off with some definitions here, like what is anemia? Anemia is defined as a reduction in one or more of the major red blood cell measurements, usually hemoglobin or hematocrit, as compared to the mean or the average for the age and gender of the patient. Hemoglobin is the protein contained in red blood cells that is responsible for the delivery of oxygen to the tissues of the body. As a lab measurement, hemoglobin is usually directly measured as a concentration in the blood via an electric counter. But prior to the electric counter, were people literally just looking at smears on a plate 
and like counting the red blood cells. Yeah, I uh, actually learned something recently relating to some of the lab, uh, the analytical chemistry around this, but I actually do not have a sense of what they did before that. I suspect that hematocrit was probably a lot easier to, to measure um, just as like the, you know, when you spin things down and the proportions of blood cells versus plasma. But uh, I don't know how we determined hemoglobin concentrations before uh, these kind of uh, these kind of tools. Yeah. Okay. So as far as normal values for hemoglobin, uh, again, this is usually directly measured these days via an electric counter. The normal hemoglobin levels in men uh, is 13.6 grams per deciliter to 16.9 grams per deciliter. Other countries use different units. uh, So you can, you know, look up a a sort of calculator or conversion chart. Uh, Normal hemoglobin levels in women is 11.9 grams per deciliter to 14.8 grams per deciliter. And so the sort of definition, if you will, of anemia is less than 13.6 in men. So that's below that lower bound I'd said for men, which is 13.6, and less than 11.9 grams per deciliter in women. Uh, It should be stated that this is somewhat controversial. The World Health Organization, the WHO, uses less than 13 grams per deciliter and less than 12 grams per deciliter for men and women respectively. But those cutoffs were designed for international nutrition studies, not like a gold standard for diagnosing anemia. So there are different cutoffs for different areas geographically, different age groups, different uh, populations, et cetera. Uh, And so there's some controversy around like, what should the normal level actually be? And that... You see that in all areas of medicine, effectively. Anytime there's a normal normal sort of value, it's like, well, where where did this come from? How was it established? And how valid is it to the person I'm testing? And we, we talked about that even in our cardio series. We're talking about METs, right? And you're like, yeah, it turns out one metabolic equivalent was derived from one dude sitting in a chair. And it's like the idea that that translates to everybody is unlikely. Yeah, it's part of the problem with kind of, you know, uh, testing for things that are continuous variables. Like you can have a hemoglobin measurement that is anything ranging from one to, you know, over 20. And I have seen patients with hemoglobins as low as I think 1.5 is the lowest that I've seen in an adult. And like 22, 23 is the highest that I've seen <laughs> in an adult and, and anything in between. But you have to set a cutoff someplace. And then the other Uh, And that's going to be imperfect on like a population level. But the other complicating factor here, we talked about this a lot in the testosterone series relating to like lab variation and things like that. There's the whole idea of biological variation, analytical variation, things like that when you do a measurement on somebody. So when you say like this cutoff is 13.6 in men versus 11.9 in women, but then the WHO says 13 and 12. And it's like, well, if I had two measurements in somebody, one who's 13.6 and the other is 13 or 11.9 and 12. In practice, I don't interpret those as like significantly different. It does not really like get my attention, the difference between those uh, absolute values. Um, but yes, you have to set cutoff someplace. And so there's some imperfection and, and you know, complication in terms of false positive, false negative uh, around that value. And that's why we don't interpret labs in isolation. This is going to be a theme here when we talk about testing, just like every other place we've ever talked about testing is just looking at numbers in isolation without a context of who is the person, are they experiencing any symptoms, any signs, any issues? Like that's how we end up needing to interpret these things. Yeah. Just imagine you get a case, your, your, your house MD, and you get a case that comes across your desk and it's just paper with like lab values on it. And you're like, all right, you know, fix this patient. And you're like, yeah, I need to know more (laughs) about this patient. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there are also different sort of severity 
uh, sort of cut points to describe like a mild, moderate, or severe anemia. So mild would be uh, anything greater than 11 grams per deciliter, but still below that cutoff of either 13 for men or 12 for women. Moderate uh, severity anemia would be between 8 to 10 grams per deciliter, and severe would be less than 8. Do you use that like in practice? And, and I guess you probably eh, care maybe a little bit less outside of like transfusion sort of guidelines. But I mean, if you have a resident who's reporting on a patient and they just say that the patient has anemia, do you stop them and you're like, ooh, is it mild, moderate, or severe? Yeah, I think there's some utility to these terms. I mean, I would agree that if I saw somebody whose hemoglobin was, you know, 11.5 or something, and I might call it a mild anemia, or somebody whose hemoglobin is, you know, six, I would call it a more severe anemia. But that also gives an incomplete uh, description of the, of the picture, because the other factor here, you know, you mentioned that hemoglobin is the protein that helps to carry oxygen around, and oxygen is what keeps us alive. So that's the whole reason we're paying attention to this. That's the whole reason we're talking about this, whether it relates to health outcomes or performance outcomes, more so in endurance sport, but really in, in general. We need oxygen to do things, and that's why we care about this. But even though you might characterize the absolute number as mild or severe, the other thing is that our body... Um, you know, it, it's so reliant on that oxygen delivery that if somebody develops anemia gradually over time, uh, their body can adapt and improve how much oxygen they can extract from your blood. And that's how, for example, I saw an adult human with a hemoglobin of 1.5, uh, which is the lowest probably almost anybody has ever seen in somebody who is, who is living. And they did not feel particularly bad. They were white as a sheet, but they felt more or less okay. And the implication of that was that this had progressed very, very gradually and their body had adapted and improved how much oxygen it could extract and maximized its efficiency of metabolism. And so they had a severe anemia, but they had like minimal to no symptoms. On the other hand, you can have a quote unquote mild anemia, say somebody's hemoglobin is 10, but what if they normally live around a hemoglobin of 16 and they just bled six units of blood out all of a sudden? They have a mild anemia, but they might be, you know, critically ill, dying, you know, something severe could be going on. So that's why I don't really like the use of those labels in absolute terms, again, without context of what's going on with the person, how quickly did this anemia develop, do they have symptoms or not, things like that. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, so that's hemoglobin. The other major red blood cell measurement is hematocrit, uh, which is the volume of red blood cells compared to the total blood volume. It's usually expressed as a percentage, sometimes always also called packed cell volume. Uh, it can be directly measured after centrifuging or spinning down a blood sample, uh, but is usually calculated indirectly by a formula. And in any case, the normal hematocrit level in men is 40 to 50%. So if you spun down a sample of blood in a man, 40 to 50% of it would be would look red, like red blood cells. Uh, in women, it's 35 to 43%. And so you can diagnose anemia with a low hematocrit less than 40% in men, less than 35% in women. Um, and we see high hematocrit measurements in people who are overproducing red blood cells. For example, those using testosterone or other anabolic steroids, or people who live with chronically low blood oxygen levels from altitude or a primary lung disease or something like that. Effectively, if you uh, need more oxygen than what's in your environment, for whatever reason, you're going to produce more red blood cells as a compensatory sort of mechanism or adaptation. And so, yeah, you might see people with high hematocrit levels. And you're like, well, something's going on here. And we'll kind of figure that out. Uh, okay. And just a, one more little comment here on these sort of normal ranges. Normal ranges for lab tests are defined as the range of values that include 95% of a healthy population, which means, quote, normal 
may vary depending on the population tested. So endurance athletes uh, tend to actually have a lower than, quote, normal uh, hemoglobin level. It's really like a dilutional anemia because the amount of uh, non-red blood cell like fluid in their blood actually expands. Their plasma expands because they sweat a lot, uh, for example. Um, and so this is sometimes called sports anemia, but like the normal values for athletes are actually a little bit different than um, uh, their, you know, physically insufficiently active population. Um, and you see that, again, for all sorts of tests, any sort of normative value or reference value is, well, really only as accurate or uh, as the population that it was established in. Um, this also happens in pregnant individuals as well. Um, they, same sort of thing. They, it looks like they have a lower than normal hemoglobin level compared to non-pregnant individuals. And so, yeah, we'll talk more about some screening stuff later and, and what this all means. But all that is to say that a single cutoff value is not particularly good, but it's what we have and kind of what we use in uh, clinical uh, medical practice. Uh, and then other things can actually affect the sort of values here that you get on a lab test, like older age, tends, those folks tend to have lower than normal hemoglobin and hematocrit. People who smoke tend to have higher than normal hemoglobin and hematocrit because, again, it compromises the oxygen that they're taking in. Uh, certain medications can raise or lower those things. Uh, different medical conditions uh, maybe that cause, like, dehydration. So you get this sort of call hemoconcentration. Um, effectively, if you have less fluid in the blood, you're gonna, it's going to appear like you have higher than normal red blood cell counts. Uh, and those living at high altitude, like we said, um, tend to have higher than normal uh, red blood cell, uh, not only volume, like hematocrit, an actual discount, which would be hemoglobin. All right. That's sort of uh, the definition of anemia. Let's talk about symptoms here. Now, Austin, again, you see people primarily in the uh, hospital. When people come in and you find an anemia, do you have a sense of like common symptoms that they have? Or are you like discovering this sort of incidentally is the wrong word, but like you're getting labs on all your patients anyway, and you'd be like, oh, shoot. Well, they got a reason to have X symptom, for example. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's super common in the patients I see because a lot of them have chronic medical problems and they're in for some complication of them or a new infection or something like that. And so most of the people that I see with anemia actually don't have clearly identifiable symptoms due to it. And that's probably because it may be relatively mild or it may have been kind of one of those anemias that developed gradually. The other reason they may not have symptoms is because a lot of these folks may not really test out their systems that hard. They may not exert themselves or exercise on a regular basis to an extent where those symptoms would manifest. In other words, even if you have some anemia, if your main you know, mode of physical activity is like getting up to walk across your house, you may not stress things enough to where you feel you know, the, the consequences of anemia. However, some situations the anemia may have developed quickly enough, or the person may be somebody who actually exerts themselves enough to where they actually do develop symptoms. And the most common one by far is probably going to be um, shortness of breath. Um, there are others. Sometimes patients can have chest pain you know, uh, related to oxygen delivery to their heart. They can have uh, muscle pain similarly related to oxygen delivery to various limbs, although that's usually due to multiple things, not just anemia, but maybe anemia and something else that's also contributing to that. 
And then the longer term symptoms that some pe- sometimes people may have heard of um, that can manifest from anemia, just generalized fatigue. Um, we can sometimes see other things like issues with hair and nails and, and gastrointestinal symptoms and, and uh, restless legs at night, people who want to eat ice and chew clay and all sorts of other weird things that can manifest, particularly in the setting of iron deficiency, even though there's a lot of other different kinds of anemia too. But I would say that just generalized fatigue um, and shortness of breath when you try to exert yourself kind of disproportionate to what you would expect for your level of fitness, I would say would be the main symptoms that I would look for in somebody who does have symptoms of anemia. Um, it's just pretty wide ranging depending on both how quickly it developed, how long the person may have had to adapt, and then how much their system is being stressed or tested uh, in terms of oxygen demand. Yeah, those are good points. I mean, we are just talking about really just delivery of oxygen to various tissues. And without oxygen, these tissues don't function quite as well, or in some cases, not at all. And so whatever organ system, tissues, whatever, is not getting enough oxygen, you can have problems in that organ system or tissue. Uh, But yeah, it does depend on the degree of the anemia. Are we talking about somebody who went from 13.6 to 12.6 or 13.6 to 5? So the magnitude is important. The rate of decline, did it happen, you know, over the course of 20 minutes, they have a massive hemorrhage, losing blood, uh, or did it occur over the you know, span of months, for example, where there, there's time then for these compensatory adaptations to occur? Uh, and then also any sort of underlying condition that's causing the anemia itself can have sort of system-wide, body-wide sort of effects. If you have, you know, a cancerous lesion, for example, that's, in your lungs, it's spa- occupying a bunch of space. Well, that's going to you know, cause some shortness of breath. And you may also have anemia, but the reason why you have shortness of breath is not necessarily due to just the anemia, but rather this big you know, hunkin' mass in your lungs, for example. So there are a bunch of general sort of nonspecific symptoms, kind of as we've been alluding to. Yeah, weakness, fatigue, poor uh, work productivity or difficulty concentrating, reduced exercise capacity assuming somebody actually tests that to a degree where they're sort of limited by oxygen delivery to the muscles. And even in some cases, uh, you know, can be associated with uh, uh, restless leg syndrome, although that's mostly iron deficiency, as it were. Uh, The proposed mechanism, again, by which anemia itself can cause symptoms is, again, this diminished oxygen carrying capacity and subsequent delivery to... um, to the tissues, but the signs and symptoms that people experience vary not only in prevalence, so how like how many people get them, but also like how severe they are, so in the magnitude. The other the other thing I would add there is that the symptoms that you can get, there are some symptoms that can be attributable to the anemia, but then there's a variety of other ones that can happen depending on what the cause of the anemia is in terms of is it anemia due to iron deficiency? That will come with a certain set of symptoms. Is it anemia due to vitamin B12 deficiency? That's another set of symptoms. Is it due to you know, colon cancer? That'll have its own, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all sorts of different potential causes, and each of those will have general anemia symptoms if a person is going to have symptoms from it, and then they may have symptoms more specific to whatever the underlying driving cause is. Yeah, I just don't want people to think, oh, I'm tired. I probably have anemia. For example, it's like in the same way we didn't want you to think I'm tired. I have low testosterone. (laughs) Exactly right. This is actually a pretty cool study. Uh, This is from 2023, so from this year, and uh, the study is titled "Association of Anemia with Clinical Symptoms Commonly Attributed to Anemia: Analysis of Two Population-Based Cohorts." They compared the presence of fatigue, lack of energy, shortness of breath uh, in those with anemia. So there's uh, almost 400 patients who had diagnosed anemia compared to those without anemia. 5,600 patients without anemia, and they basically gave them questionnaires and were like, hey, do you have 
these signs or symptoms? And if so, like what's the severity that you have them? Uh, so most of the anemia cases were mild, close to 90% of the nearly 400 patients who had anemia, they were quote mild. So not a huge decrease in hemoglobin and or hematocrit. Um, and then when you compare the two groups to each other, 34% of those with anemia reported that they were, they had fatigue uh, and 29% of those without anemia also reported fatigue. And so I'm just like, well, people are tired, as it turns out, just out there in the world, tired. Uh, and same thing, 21% of those with anemia reported lack of energy, and then 16% of those without anemia reported the same symptom. And so, again, this is just to reiterate that nonspecific or general symptoms require a full workup to identify the issue. And so just you know, sending an isolated H&H hemoglobin and hematocrit because someone's tired is not great medical care. And doing this on your own without sort of medical expertise is uh, not something we'd recommend. And again, anemia has many causes and nonspecific signs do just require this additional workup. And so like if you're experiencing uh, symptoms and signs that you're like concerned about, 10 out of 10 would recommend contacting your physician for the appropriate workup rather than contacting a clinical lab and being like, hey, can I get some tests done? I just want to like send it. And they're like, send, send, send what exactly? <laughs> and again, just because you can do something doesn't mean you, you should do it, you know? Yeah, the level of complexity here, I think, is definitely underappreciated, particularly among, you know, those who enjoy pursuing their own lab testing, because <laughs> you could just send an isolated test and maybe it comes back normal. That's great. Maybe even even comes back a little bit anemic and you're like, oh, the the, the number is red. Uh, that means that's why I'm tired. And it's like, well, you could still be missing why that's happening or your symptoms may be disproportionate to the degree of anemia and you need to keep looking for other things. Like there's so many ways that you could go wrong here and miss something potentially life-threatening. Um, anemia is a, is just, it can be as, uh, something that is super common, typical, benign, like excessive menstrual blood loss would be a common reason that we might see it in premenopausal women, but it could be as bad as a, you know, pretty advanced colon cancer. And, and so, you know, I hear about people who are like, oh, I was a little anemic. So I started taking iron and I'm like, this is not good. <laughs> this is dangerous uh, for sure. Yeah. I get the appeal though. Like medical science is fascinating. And I think if you actually asked, you know, med students or practicing physicians like, hey, you know, why did you go into medicine? A, a, a large proportion of them would say, look, the science itself is absolutely fascinating. And I, I wanted to learn more so I could become proficient in not only like discussing these things, but also treating people and sort of figuring out what's wrong. I get that. But without the sort of requisite training, it is very difficult to do on your own. I was in the pool in my building the other day, and this guy's talking to me, you know, he's at, he asked me what I do, I tell him, and I ask him what he does, he, he sells insurance. And he's like, but I'm thinking about going back to school for endocrinology. And I'm like, oddly specific. Uh, you know, he's like, that's just fascinating how hormones work and this, that, and the other, and how different sort of lifestyle things can affect hormone levels. And I'm like, you're damn right. It is. It is fascinating. <laughs> is he, is he, uh, I hope he's prepared for a 10 year journey then. <laughs> well, so that's why I said, I said, Oh, so you're thinking med school, right? He's like, no, no, I think I'm gonna take some undergrad classes and this that, and the other. And I'm like, in endocrinology, like, well, <laughs> and I don't mean to be, you know, dismissive of, of that. It's just like, you know, to, to actually understand endocrinology at even like a conversational level, you know, 
you're going to need to go to medical school. Then you go through your internal medicine residency, and then you do an endocrinology fellowship. And only then, at that point, are you like, I think I have a decent sense of what's going on here. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, you're going to need maybe a decade more of actual clinical practice before you become a a bona fide expert. And, you know, shout out to the endocrinologists out there because y'all are doing the most. I can't imagine, you know, as, as triggered as we get, on yeah, random stuff on sure. the internet. Imagine being Carl Nadolsky, a board certified <laughs> endocrinologist, and just what you see out there. You're like, dear God. I, yeah. So, hat tip to that guy. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about the epidemiology, sort of some fast stats on anemia. As I alluded to in the introduction, this is a large problem. As of 2021, the global prevalence of anemia across all ages was 24.3%, corresponding to 1.92 billion cases with the B. Again, it's the third most common cause of disability worldwide at 5.7% behind only low back pain and depressive disorders. The sort of uh, prevalence is actually down from the last time it was ma- uh, measured in 1990. It previously was 28.2% of the worldwide population had anemia. Uh, now it's 243 But since the population has expanded, there are actually more cases. So previously, it was estimated that 1.5 billion people worldwide had anemia. Now it's close to 2 billion. Uh, highest prevalence... Uh, these sort of high-risk populations include preschool-age children, um, where the rates are generally similar between males and females. It's usually up to age about 10. In adulthood, this affects far more women than men, particularly women of reproductive age and pregnant women, although data on women who are who have delivered uh, and are lactating, it's not really available, so we don't really know does the calculus change there. But in general, women, particularly if they're of reproductive age, this is you guys outnumber men by a lot here. So this is, it's not a a women only sort of disease, but I I do want to, you know, make that case that this affects far more women uh, than men. And then the other big high risk population are are people of, uh, uh, in their later stages of their life, tend to converge just from a, like a uh, sex-based sort of uh, incidence uh, in late, later in life in the 70s and 80s. So men and women both tend to get this. But again, you're talking about people with multiple medical issues um, that are going on. And again, those things can cause anemia. The leading cause of anemia, as I think Austin said earlier, is iron deficiency anemia. That represents about two-thirds of all cases and affects uh, 444 million people. Um, And the most common cause of iron deficiency anemia is dietary iron deficiency. That's why there's all these public health programs in place for food fortification, oral iron supplements are widely available, things of that nature. Uh, Although I do think you miss some of this when you look at like global incidences, because there are places in the world where dietary iron concentrations are very low and just food, you know, security, like having enough food to eat is also uh, very, very low. And so if you look in the United States, it's lower uh, than other countries and other areas of the world, this like sort of dietary lack of iron. But worldwide, yeah, that's probably the biggest cause of iron deficiency. Anemia is actually iron in the diet. Um, Iron deficiency anemia affects up to about 52% of female adolescent athletes and 30 to 50% of all athletes participating in endurance sports. And so this does have a tie into sports performance. Um, Sometimes you can be iron deficient and not have anemia, but still that does seem to compromise performance. The the other thing I'd point out here is that those statistics are alarming on their own, 
But that prevalence that you cite of, say, up to 52% of female adolescent athletes, that's also going to be dependent on how you're diagnosing the iron deficiency in terms of where you put those diagnostic cutoffs that we talked about with the testing. And there's not only some controversy around like the definition of anemia that you mentioned, but also I would say there's probably even more controversy around where you establish cutoffs for diagnosing iron deficiency in particular, which we'll talk about later with labs specifically measurement of things like ferritin, um, where those cutoffs are set, there's actually quite a bit more controversy. And so I think that, you know, the lower you set that cutoff of what is normal or abnormal, you'll diagnose, you know, less and less, uh, you know, iron deficiency compared to setting a normal cutoff higher. And so that can impact what proportion of athletes or this prevalence that you say are iron deficient. And so I agree, it's a big problem. Um, but just with the caveat of there's some error bars around that, depending on how we're actually diagnosing it. And I think it's probably underdiagnosed because of most of the labs that I see when I order iron panels on people, in my opinion, the ferritin cutoff is too, is, is, uh, set, uh, incorrectly for what is normal. In other words, that's set too low. So they'll, they'll, they'll give you a cutoff, say of like 15 or something like that. So like somebody with a ferritin of 18 or something is labeled as normal. And I do not buy that, yeah. <laughs> but we'll get, we'll get to that later. <laughs> it's the same problem we see with like using BMI to diagnose obesity. And so like, if you use the cutoff of 30 to diagnose obesity, uh, yeah, you have a, you know, huge, huge prevalence of obesity, but the problem is, yeah, that number itself is alarming, um, worldwide, but the fact is you're still missing about half of folks who are carrying too much body fat and who would be diagnosed as having uh, obesity by using that cutoff of 30. If you lowered it to, say, 27, 26, you're going to capture a lot more, and that number is going to get even higher. And so you see a similar relationship. It just matters where that cutoff is for how many people you're going to capture in a sort of analysis. Um, but in any case, iron deficiency anemia is the most common cause worldwide of anemia. The next two most common causes are hemoglobinopathies, which is a really cool word. 10 out of 10 would recommend adding it to the lexicon. Um, so these are things like sickle cell disease and thalassemia syndromes. Um, and then the third most common cause are hemolytic anemias where red blood cells are destroyed faster than they're made. This is, occurs in some types of uh, autoimmune disorders. Collectively, iron deficiency anemia, hemoglobinopathies, and hemolytic anemias account for 80, almost 85% of anemia worldwide. But there are other causes, so things like chronic kidney disease, infections, folate or vitamin B12 deficiency, uh, different gastrointestinal and gynecological conditions. The lists really just go on and on and on. But when you think about the three major players worldwide, you're thinking about iron deficiency anemia, problems with the hemoglobin itself, like you see in sickle cell disease, and then conditions where red blood cells are actually destroyed faster than they're made. Um, and you probably see a number of those in the hospital. Yeah, I feel like I've seen almost all of the <laughs> causes of iron deficiency uh, or, or of anemia at this point uh, over the years. And the other thing that's important to point out is that iron deficiency itself is not what we call a like final diagnosis or a terminal diagnosis. So you mentioned that a lot of cases worldwide are caused by dietary deficiency. I think that, you know, at least in the you know, U.S. population, like the folks that I see, that is a minority of cases, a, a strong minority of cases. Um, most of what I see is due to iron losses, i.e. from bleeding, for example. Um, and so that's why, and, and, and some of the potential causes of iron losses, for example, from bleeding are potentially, you know, dangerous or what we call morbid causes. And so just for somebody to say, oh, they just have iron deficiency, that is never a satisfactory diagnosis. The next question is always why. Is it due to inadequate intake? If not, where are they losing it from? Because there are potentially dangerous conditions that can cause iron losses and we have to find it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Shifting uh, to how does anemia affect sports performance? Uh, so this is pretty interesting just as a whole, in, to me anyway, like, you know, 
iron deficiency in athletes, anemia in athletes? How does this actually affect training or sports performance? Um, so first off, athletes in general turn over iron far faster um, and far more regularly than uh, insufficiently active or sedentary individuals. It's about 20% greater in athletes, although the higher the training volume tends to be, the more iron turnover, more iron excretion there actually is. You lose some in sweat, for example, and other processes that if you don't do that, well, you're not losing nearly as much. Um, athletes generally have a lower hemoglobin concentration than the general population. As I talked about earlier, this is called sports anemia, although this is really a kind of misnamed because it describes a false anemia. When you say the word sports anemia, people are like, I'm anemic? WTF, mate. And it's like, well, you don't really have anemia. What it is, though, is that there's a decrease in hematocrit hemoglobin, and overall red blood cell count caused by typically endurance training. And this uh, is basically an exercise-induced plasma volume expansion. You have X amount of plasma uh, floating around in your blood vessels, and you sweat out a ton of that when you do um, particularly endurance exercise, particularly in warm climates, for example. And so the body adapts by increasing plasma volume. And so it dilutes down, it reduces this sort of fraction of a blood sample uh, that uh, the hematocrit and the hemoglobin actually in that blood sample. Uh, so, But it's not a real sort of anemia. The absolute hemoglobin mass, so the amount of hemoglobin you actually have in your body is actually increased because, hey, if you do exercise that requires you to transport a ton of oxygen to the muscles, your body is going to adapt to that and say, hey, let's make some more of this stuff. We, we could use it. Yeah, you know, you mentioned that, you know, these measurements, for example, of hemoglobin are in grams per deciliter in the US or grams per liter in the world. Anem like that, the reason we care about it, again, that level of oxygen carrying capacity, it's really determined by the grams, right? And this is a situation where you're anemic, not because the grams are down, but because the deciliters or the liters are up. That's the, those are the two ways that that kind of, you know, concentration can be decreased. You got too many deciliters. As far as, <laughs> how, as, as, far as how often this actually occurs, uh, the prevalence is difficult to determine, but it's been estimated to be as high as 16.5% in men and 23% in women, uh, although it's really unknown what the true prevalence is. And this is because most of the studies actually looking at this use small sample sizes, don't have the proper control group, like a either insufficiently active group or people who are otherwise sedentary. Uh, and then again, just the sort of base knowledge going into a study, like if you were a researcher, you need to know that the mean hemoglobin concentration, like on a blood sample is going to be lower in athletes. And so you're like, look, there's, they're lower. Uh, it's like, well, yeah, you expect that. So it's just really difficult to determine who's like truly anemic versus those who have sports anemia versus those who have like what looks like a normal red blood cell level, but that's inappropriate because they have something else going on under the hood uh, when you're looking at athletes. Uh, so overall, more study is required. Another reason why athletes tend to have higher amounts of hemoglobin mass, so more grams, as Austin said, is because during certain types of exercise, you actually destroy more red blood cells when you're doing the exercise. So this is called exercise-induced hemolysis. And so if you kind of take apart the word hemolysis, hemo referring to like blood cell lysis, meaning you know, destruction or breaking down. And so exercise-induced hemolysis is defined as a rupture and destruction of red blood cells during physical exercise. Happens mostly with running, but it can also occur in power walking. There's a study in race walkers, and they showed actually a more profound amount of exercise-induced hemolysis than runners. Yeah, who knew? And, yeah. <laughs> well, I try to reason this out, right? You know, what are the mechanisms? And I'm yeah, like, yeah, well, yeah. they spend more time 
with, you know, on the ground phase. There's no flight Contacting phase. Contacting versus air. Yeah. That's okay. right. Yeah. So they're just smashing <laughs> these red blood cells to bits. And so, yeah, again, you can have a greater sort of signal to drive more hemoglobin uh, production in, in, in that case. But in runners, erythrocytes lifespan is like 40% that of non-athletes. Uh, they just last a shorter period of time. Usually in normal folks, it's about three months, we, we estimate or so. Uh, but it's way less than that in runners because, they, again, they just smash the crap out of them. Um, also, apparently in runners, I did not know that this was a common thing. But I guess if they're doing a lot of running, the bladder itself, you can get like an injury to the bladder, a bladder contusion that smashes red blood cells. And you can get some hematuria, which, again, hemat hema referring to red blood cells and urea referring to urine. So you get a little blood in the urine. And can you imagine somebody just ran a marathon, they come in, ah, I'm here for my yearly physical, and you get a urine sample, and you're like, bro, you got blood in there. <laughs> and then you go looking for a cause. I mean, like, the first yeah. question would be like, is this rhabdo? But anyway, yeah, didn't know that that was a thing either. So there you go. Uh, for our lifter only folks out there, you might be thinking, well, shoot, I put a bar on my back. For example, I'm smashing red blood cells, transported through you know, the vessels that supply my skin, my upper back. I'm probably, it's probably the same. Yeah, not so much. It's actually a study uh, that looked at folks who were previously sedentary, who then underwent 12 weeks of resistance training, and they did squats uh, on a Smith machine, they did leg press, they did pull downs, they did rows, a bunch of other stuff. And basically, their hemoglobin concentration didn't change after 12 weeks. It didn't really matter what their initial iron status was, what their gender was, it just didn't really change. It went down a half point. But as you pointed out earlier, Austin, going down by a half point, you're like, yeah, that's well within the sort of not only analytical variation, the test itself, but also biological variation. So you test somebody, you know, one day to the next. It's like, eh, shoulder shrug. Don't really know what this means. No care. Unless there are signs and symptoms associated with, uh, you know, what's going on. Interestingly, though, sometimes athletes actually may have higher than normal levels of iron. Now, we're not talking about red blood cells themselves right now. We're not talking about hemoglobin or hematocrit or anemia, but we're talking about iron, okay? We, talk, we said that the worldwide, the leading cause of anemia is iron deficiency anemia, but sometimes, oftentimes, in fact, athletes actually have higher than normal iron. So let's enter, let's talk about the HFE gene. So the human homeostatic iron regulator protein, which is for obvious reasons, called HFE, because nobody wants to say that crap, has two classical mutations, C282Y and H63D. Please just remove that from your memory. You do not need to know that. But if you really wanted to go down the rabbit hole, I felt like I should say it on air. Um, so in genetics, having a pair of either of either type of these mutations is called homozygous, whereas containing only one allele, one type, of either of these mutations is called heterozygous. People who are homozygous for these mutations have, tend to have a condition called hemochromatosis, which is iron overload. This was originally discovered in the 1800s by French physicians, and they called it bronze diabetes or pigmented cirrhosis. These folks came in apparently brown. They just, as it turns out, excess iron can cause damage in organs, resulting in, yeah, not only fatigue, but things like heart failure, liver cirrhosis, uh, liver cancer. Uh, you can have hypogonadism because the iron actually deposits in the pituitary gland itself and messes that all up. Joint osteoarthritis, uh, diabetes, because again, it can affect the pancreas and other tissues. And uh, yeah, some of that iron gets laid down in the skin and uh, you wouldn't know if it's self-tanner or is it iron. I, th I, I don't know. I think iron supplementation could have a glow up if you were like, hey, <laughs> if you're willing you to deal with the cirrhosis and the heart failure from it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, but your skin's going to look, it's going to be on point. Um, okay, so let's get back to this HFE gene. So in the general population 
about 9.2% of folks are carriers for the C282Y mutation. This is mostly in Caucasian individuals, particularly of European descent. And about 22% of folks carry the H63D mutation. Now, again, if you had two copies of these genes, that would be you probably have hemochromatosis, but if you only have one, you're just kind of like a silent carrier. And for a long time, people were like, eh, not concerned. However, when you started looking at athletes, these people started doing all these genetic studies like, hey, why are athletes the way they are? Are they just built differently? Like, is something going on genetically? And in fact, they found some pretty interesting findings with respect to one of these HFE gene mutations. So, for example, in 315 international endurance athletes from Russia and Japan, the study found that Russians had the H63D mutation at a 38% higher rate than the uh, insufficiently active or sedentary controls. And the Japanese had that same mutation at a 13% higher rate. So they had higher rates of these mutations, but just one copy compared to the uh, non-elite athlete controls. Uh, it goes on. A study in 65 professional endurance athletes compared to age and sex match controls found that nearly half of the athletes had at least one HFE mutation, whereas only 33% of the sedentary controls had it. In a 10-kilometer cycling trial uh, done by competitive male athletes, those with these, one of these HFE mutations, they were 8% faster on the time trial and had a 17% higher VO2 max, so they could use more oxygen, for example. In a study on a 170 elite French endurance athletes, 80% of the French athletes who won international competitions in rowing, Nordic skiing, and judo displayed mutations in one of the HFE genes whereas only 27% of the uh, French population had one of these mutations. So it's just way out of proportion to what you would ex expect. If this gene didn't do anything for sport, you would not expect it to be overrepresented in sport. But yet here we are, 80% of French athletes, half of professional endurance athletes maybe having this. That's insane. And so we think maybe one of these mutations in the genes that are responsible for like iron uptake, this HFE gene, may be advantageous maybe just because it's elevated iron levels and that kind of increases physical performance. Maybe there's uh, been some data on reduced infection risk because effectively having one of these gene mutations sequesters iron away from macrophages. Macrophages basically swallow the bacteria, the invading pathogen, if you will, and if they don't have iron to sort of subsist on, they just die. So reduced infection risk, for example. Has also been tied with alteration in sex hormones. So men tend to have higher testosterone levels um, if they have one of these mutations. There are lower atherosclerosis rates if you have one of these copies, although if you have two copies of these genes, you have higher atherosclerosis rates. That's just a fancy way of saying your blood vessels uh, um, are set up in such a way where you have an increased risk of heart disease. So there may be a possible fitness advantage, not only in sport, but also like in life for having these genes. And that's why it's been like, conserved throughout evolution. You would expect if this was like a deleterious trait to have offered no advantage that would have been selected out for, or at least not selected for, uh, through over time. It is interesting to me. This was like the only thing that made my eyes light up when I was talking, <laughs> you know, researching anemia, but yeah, I don't know. Austin, do you have a take on this? Yeah. I find this also to be super interesting, not something that I've thought about specifically before, but it fits just with general, you know, concepts that we've talked about a lot in other contexts, you know, like the sports gene book that Epstein wrote and how, you know, all any, any given sport is a little like evolutionary microcosm in which the way the rules of the sport are set up leads to the selection of the most 
genetic freaks um, that are that are kind of set up most favorably for that outcome. And so for endurance people, my best guess here would be, you know, elevated iron levels mitigating the effects of, you know, iron deficiency, which is super common, but, you know, leaving you more resistant to iron deficiency, potentially even giving you a little boost in your blood, uh, you know, uh, blood, blood cell production, hemoglobin levels, things like that, that would clearly confer an advantage for endurance performance. That's why a lot of endurance athletes, for example, go up and train at altitude for significant portions of the year. That's why, you know, the Tour de France guys were, uh, you know, abusing EPO or doing blood doping, auto transfusing, basically boosting their blood levels, which would come with a hefty dose of iron every time you gave yourself a unit of blood, for example. Um, and so the idea that, you know, people having these kind of mutations that would set you up or polymorphisms, I should say, mutations makes it sound bad, but those, those genetic variations that set you up favorably in that way would be selected for in sport makes a ton of sense. The same way that, you know, in NBA basketball, you get selected for genes that make you really tall or baseball. You get selected for genes that give you exceptional vision, visual acuity and hand-eye coordination, things like that. Each sport just selects for particular freaky attributes. And this makes a lot of sense as one among, I imagine, many others that are selected for in endurance sport. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts. At Pioneer Belts, they have belts for all applications. If you're interested on how belts work or how to choose a belt, check out our podcast episode number 219. Most people will do best with a four inch wide belt that's 10 millimeters thick, either single prong or lever, depending on the fastening mechanism that you prefer. Pioneer has industry exclusive micro adjustments on their lever belts for ease of use without tools. They also make custom belts to your specs, depending on what you want. Trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes, choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Head to generalleathercraft.com and tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. Yeah, I, I tried looking to see, you know, hey, is there any evidence that strength power athletes have higher amounts of these HFE polymorphisms? And as is the case, most of the time in strength power sports, no one cares. <laughs> and people but of course we would, we, yeah we wouldn't expect it to either just for in the same similar reasons that we talked about in the cardio podcast series that 
iron and oxygen carrying capacity of the blood is not a performance limiter in the context of powerlifting. Maybe it may have a bit more of a role in, you know, if you want to count CrossFit or something like that, or, or other kind of like strength, power, conditioning, overlap activities and things like that. But I wouldn't expect like powerlifters to be like, oh yeah, I need boatloads of iron to get me through this five second squat. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking though. I was like, if there was a role for iron in sort of muscle mass development, sure. strength development, power development, or expression of any of those traits, then you would expect some sort of genetic yeah, maybe. Know, predisposition. But if it uh, is a, if it is a non-oxygen mediated pathway, right? Cause we use iron for other things than just making blood. Yeah. It turns out iron is uh, pretty important as mm -hmm. it were, not only just lifting it, but also like having it. <laughs> hey, which is a perfect segue into the most common cause again of anemia, which is iron deficiency anemia. And so I thought this would be a good chance to talk about the pathophysiology by which iron deficiency actually causes anemia. So this requires discussion of like, what does iron do? How is iron regulated in the body? And so Dr. Baraki, you are a bona fide expert in this. You talk about it all the time. Why don't you take people through iron deficiency anemia and like how it actually causes uh, people to have anemia? Sure. Yeah, our red blood cells, which are the things we've been focusing on the most so far that actually carry the oxygen, the way they do that is with this protein or technically a hemoprotein called hemoglobin. And that pro that is, you know, contained within all each of our red blood cells. This is made up of uh, a protein um, and there is a heme group, uh, which itself is made up of iron and another kind of protein linker. And then that's hooked up with something called globin. So that's where we get heme and globin. And so this is mostly used for oxygen uh, transport, carbon dioxide transport, utilization, et cetera. This is in hemoglobin in our red blood cells and, some, and a protein called myoglobin in all of our muscle cells. But heme groups are also found in a lot of other bodily proteins found in, you know, certain enzymes in our liver, other proteins throughout scattered throughout the body. So iron directly or indirectly plays a really important role in innumerable different bodily functions. And then even separate from this so-called heme iron, there's also non-heme iron, where iron is being used as like a cofactor in certain chemical reactions relating to things like making new DNA or making neurotransmitters or various other important signaling molecules in the body. And so because there are so many different roles, the hemoglobin myoglobin role of iron is really important, mainly for that oxygen delivery and utilization. And so that's where if you're low on that, you can get those symptoms of inadequate oxygen you know, delivery and utilization, shortness of breath and things like that with activity. There are also all these other weird symptoms that you might've been confused when we said, oh yeah, you can get, you know, restless leg syndrome, or you can, you can have alopecia or your nails can change their shape, or you can get issues with your esophagus or whatever with iron deficiency. And so the thought is that there's all these other non, you know, heme iron functions of iron. Those can also become impaired if you are overall iron deficient. And so when those all break, you can get all sorts of other weird symptoms. Um, so the overwhelming amount of iron that we have is within our actual red blood cells, about 2,500 milligrams of iron total uh, contained in that kind of uh, compartment. Um, and then the remaining is within myoglobin and within these enzymes, which is a far, far smaller fraction. And then we have a surplus kind of storage form of iron that's hooked up to a protein called ferritin. And we'll talk about that because that's something that we actually measure on a, on a blood test. But this is important to recognize because only about 0.1% of iron circulates in plasma uh, bound to something called bound to another protein called transferrin. And so if you thought that you could go and you could just, you know, look up on ordermyownlabs.com, then go that scroll down and find iron, oh, blood iron level. And that's how I'm going to determine whether I'm iron deficient or not. That is absolutely wrong. <laughs> in fact, blood iron level is probably 
the iron related measurement that I pay the least attention to when I'm looking at this. It is arguably the, the most useless of them compared with the actual blood count, certain other parameters on the complete blood count, the ferritin level, the transferrin saturation. Those are all things that I look at way, way, way more um, and not so much the blood iron level itself. But really important to recognize, you know, we've talked about how important iron is for all these things, and you don't want really want to be deficient, but excess iron has kind of an, an oxidative, you know, stress uh, effect on various tissues in the body can promote the development of these things called free radicals, which we don't need to get into the advanced chemistry of that, but these are actually quite harmful. And that's why those conditions where you can have excess iron can be uh, super harmful and lead to a number of chronic diseases that are pretty miserable to deal with. So there's kind of like this sweet spot range of where you want your iron to be, not too little and not too much. And so this system in ideal situations is pretty tightly regulated. Now, of course, we said that iron deficiency is super, super common. And so despite this regulation, it's pretty common for it to go bad. And when I say go bad, that can be due to most, for the most part, somebody not taking in enough iron in their diet, which happens more so in the rest of the world on average, um, or are you losing iron? namely from bleeding type issues. And that's kind of like the most simplified, you know, mental approach that you can take to iron deficiency is, are you not taking in enough or are you losing it? And then when you talk about, you know, are you losing it or are you failing to absorb it? The list of potential reasons why that can be, that can happen is pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out iron homeostasis is very complicated, but I do think that like distilling it down to like, yeah, if you're losing more than you are obtaining from the environment or retain otherwise retaining, reabsorbing, uh, yeah, you're going to be in, in trouble. And so this, if you, if you can make the analogy to sort of calories in versus calories out, sort of driving body weight management, well, with respect to like iron levels in the body, yeah, it's iron in versus iron out. And so if you have a problem on one side of the equation or the other, you're going to have, you're likely to have more problems if that is significant. So as I understand it, there are many different type, different types of iron deficiency. Like what ones do you see most commonly versus things that are like, yeah, this can cause iron deficiency, but obviously these are zebras. And so we don't, we don't yeah. really know what, you know. I think the simplest way to understand this is, you know, from, from birth, we're born with a supply of iron and that's determined by our birth weight how long we, you know, went through gestation for, whether they did the appropriate, like clamping of your umbilical cord after birth, that just like pumps you up with a little extra blood to, to get you through your early days until you are able to get more through nutrition. But as adults, you know, we don't absorb a ton uh, from our intestines. You know, I mentioned that like 2,500 milligram overall supply, but we only absorb like a milligram or two a day from our small intestine. So I think that, you know, mentally the easiest way way to understand iron is to kind of take a magic school bus style tour of how iron gets into our system. <laughs> Miss, Miss Frizzle. <laughs> there you I'll, go. <laughs> also pause. Do you know what Miss Frizzle's first name is? Uh, if I did, I do not remember it. <laughs> Valerie. Oh, I think that what? does sound familiar. <laughs> like, what? Like, okay, hold on. How many people are call calling their teacher by their first name? Like what sort of like rapport have you established with yeah. your professor? You're like, yo, what up Val? Like, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, All right, let's, yeah, let's do the magic school bus thing. Let's let's take a trip. Sure. So you know, you it starts with dietary intake. So dietary, you know, foods that are rich in dietary iron, which we don't need to get into a whole list of that. But assuming you're taking in enough through your diet, you need to be able to you know chew it, swallow it, get it down into your stomach. It needs to be in a particular chemical form called ferrous iron. Kind of it's like two plus chemical state, and you need to have adequate you know stomach acid needs to get through your uh, stomach into that small intestine where it needs to be able to get absorbed. And so the reason I mention all this is 
you can be eating diet dietary iron, but there may be other reasons at the next step where you might fail to absorb it relating to issues within the stomach, relating to issues with, you know, your stomach acid, relating to issues with your small intestine, particularly the first part of your small intestine called the duodenum, where, for example, a common issue that can lead to iron deficiency is celiac disease. That's where that um, condition tends to hit. And iron deficiency is a, you know, fairly common finding in patients with celiac disease. Um, or for example, if somebody's had bariatric surgery and had part of that intestine removed, for example, that's another reason why you're not going to absorb it there, even if you're eating it. And there may be other ways that we need to get iron into you. I would not give somebody, for example, oral iron supplements to treat iron deficiency if they had had significant portion of their gut, gut removed for bariatric surgery, because it's just going to go straight through and not get absorbed. Ain't going to work. That's yeah. right. So you need to be able to eat it. You need to be able to break it down. You need to be able to absorb it. And then if all that goes well, then sure, it's going to get into your blood. It'll make its way, you know, through the digestive kind of processes through the liver stored in complex with ferritin normally get utilized by the tissues, get utilized by your bone marrow to make blood. If that's all happening, um, then you have plenty of iron coming in, getting absorbed, making plenty of blood. If you are iron deficient, then the next question is, where are you losing it from? Where's the iron going? <laughs> exactly. And so we can lose it in many of the same ways, as well as a bunch of other ways. The first place that we tend to look is in the gastrointestinal tract. So anywhere from the esophagus stomach through the small bowel, all the way through the colon are places where there can be sources of bleeding. This can be due to things like ulcers or certain abnormalities with your blood vessels. Um, this can be due to uh, uh, malignancies like cancerous tumors and things like that. And then the, the risk of these things happening can also increase when people are taking certain medicines that can increase your risk of bleeding. This is probably one of the most common things that any clinician will see in practice. People on aspirin or other blood thinners um, who have that kind of predisposition and then maybe something else leads to them actually overtly bleeding from their gastrointestinal tract. Um, so the GI tract is one source, the genitourinary tract, you mentioned gynecologic sources. So heavy menstrual blood losses can be common in premenopausal uh, women, uterine fibroids, various other reasons why gynecologic bleeding is quite common. You can bleed from the urinary uh, tract, whether from the ureters, the bladder, uh, things like that can technically bleed into your lungs in really, you know, severe, dangerous situations. Um, there are even some interesting and unfortunate case reports of people developing iron deficiency by iron losses through their skin, for example, from lice and, and other kind of parasitic infestations, um, you know, with depending on their housing situation and hygiene and, and other, uh, you know, socioeconomic and, you know, sometimes in some situations, psychiatric factors that can lead that to happen and people can lose iron that way. So there's a whole bunch of different pathways by which which iron can be lost from the body. And so if I have a patient who um, has anemia and I suspect, or I actually confirm that it is due to iron deficiency, I'm taking a history relating first and foremost to potential, you know, causes or risk factors for blood loss. Um, this can be things like, are you on any of those kind of medicines that can leave you prone to bleeding? Do you have any signs or symptoms that would raise my concern for, you know, a cancer, for example, unintentional weight loss and things like that, like a colon cancer? Have you had any kind of screening or testing for that? And then if I come up empty there, I might ask about other systems, talking about menstrual blood losses, talking about dietary iron intake, talking about factors for inadequate iron absorption. You know, are they on medicines that can impair their gastric acid secretion and iron absorption? Do they have signs or symptoms of celiac disease, things like that? So that's kind of like the big picture. I'm applying the same iron in versus iron out when I'm asking all my questions. I'm just starting with the ones that are either the most common or the most dangerous um, and making sure that I tick those off before I attribute it to something more benign, like ah, you should probably just take an iron pill or eat more iron or something like that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's good. The, before we get into like, okay, you have a patient in front of you and you're evaluating them for a particular type of anemia, there are actually some screening guidelines out there for like, 
hey, we should test everybody at this particular age group, for example, to see if they have anemia and then further work that up. Now, this is not for effectively every human on the planet at all ages. And yep, as with most things in medicine, there is some controversy here. So in children, the United States Preventative Services Task Force issued a statement um, on screening for iron deficiency anemia in asymptomatic children between six to 24 months of age, stating that there was insufficient evidence on the benefits versus harms of screening for anemia in children in this age group. The American Academy of Family Practice released its position stating, universal screening for anemia should be performed at 12 months of age uh, with measurement of hemoglobin levels and assessment for risk factors associated with iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. So effectively, two big organizational bodies saying, the exact opposite thing. Um, I don't know, Austin, do you have a take on that as far as like screening and kids? I don't see kids, not really something that I give a ton of thought to. I do think that there are some dietary risk factors that are more of a concern in the pediatric, you know, population related to like cow's milk and things like that. This is just mainly stuff that I remember from training, but uh, not something that I deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I do not have a strong opinion here. I'm sure pediatricians in the audience do though. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't know enough about the ins and outs of this to really have an opinion on the USPSTF recommendations to like not, although I will say that in general, if there's not great evidence that suggests doing a screening test actually moves the needle, the needle in this case being like prevents unwanted disease, prevents unwanted death, you know, this, that, and the other, they basically say the same thing every time. They're like insufficient evidence. And we're like, okay. Uh, That doesn't mean there's no evidence. They just say it's insufficient evidence. And I think the American Academy of Family Practice in this particular population takes a more sort of risk averse state on this because they're like, yeah, well, Look, if we just test everyone at 12 months, we're not going to miss any kids that have like mount, you know, risk of malnourishment, for example. And that's, you know, if you have low iron status, iron deficiency as a kid that has unwanted effects uh, for development. Uh, same thing in pregnant women. The USPSTF uh, concluded that the evidence of the effect of routine screening for iron deficiency anemia in asymptomatic pregnant women on maternal health and birth outcomes is insufficient. It's the same thing. They're like, eh shoulder shrug, but the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, ACOG, who I trust far more in general when it comes to like what do in pregnant individuals, they said all pregnant women should be screened for anemia and treated if necessary. And it's like, okay, I'm probably going to defer to that again as a non-expert in this particular aspect of women's health. I'm going to go with ACOG over that. If, if I had to guess their perspective on this, which makes sense to me, is that the potential harms of doing this are quite low and the potential benefits insofar as, you know, anemia and iron deficiency has impacts on the fetus and the, the child definitely with respect to developmental outcomes, long-term cognitive outcomes, school performance, all this stuff is negatively impacted by iron deficiency, that the potential upside is quite high with a low risk. And so they'll do that. But again, like you said, the USPSDF doesn't um, weigh things in that way. Rather, they're like, is there direct and clear evidence of this? Not, yeah. it seems like a favorable trade-off. <laughs> so. Yeah. But in adults, those who are not pregnant, there are no recommendations for routine anemia screening in adults. Meaning like, hey, you're listening to this podcast and you're like, bro, this is interesting. Iron deficiency, anemia. I need to immediately go out and get screened, get tested for this. And that's not really what we're recommending. And in fact, I think it might be useful here uh, to do a little kind of case study to see what what would Baraki do in a particular situation? Because you're, you know, if you were practicing outpatient in a, in a, in a, you know, primary care clinic or whatever, this is something you would see all the time. And I'd just be more curious as to like, what's your brain going to do in this situation? So, all right, hit a- me. <laughs> asking asking for a friend, asking for a friend, thirty eight year old male, apparently healthy, reports fatigue, and that's it. 
that's that's where the case starts. My favorite kind of clinical reasoning or exercise. Yeah, um, I think that the first kind of uh, move here is to obviously characterize this a bit more. What does the person mean by fatigue, and how long has it been going on for, and what's the trajectory been? You don't have to like come up with answers for all these things. This is just kind of this is just kind of how I'm thinking. <laughs> if you want to do a, a standardized patient practice case, we can, we can. But that's kind of how you know if somebody says I've been just exhausted all of a sudden for the past few days, and that's way out of the ordinary for me. I'm going to think about that differently than I've just had this like mild low level fatigue for months or years, or it's been progressive for that amount of time, because that kind of um, description fits different kind of syndromes that could be going on. But um, in somebody, you know, with that presentation, I'm going to be assessing things first and foremost, like their sleep, their their lifestyle habits, because sleep issues is overwhelmingly probably the most most common here. Other sorts of alcohol use, substance use, behavioral sorts of things. Uh, all of this is going to happen before I dive down into, you know, actual biomedical issues. So their day to day, their life stress, their sleep, substance use, you know, dietary intake, physical activity, all those kind of things um, to, to, to get a good sense of where they're at there, as well as looking at are they, you know, using any other substances or are they on any medicines that can contribute to this kind of thing. But if I am going to go down a kind of biomedical evaluation testing route, it's going to involve looking for things like risk of sleep apnea. Um, uh, uh, it's going to be a high priority and also super common underdiagnosed. Once we get into things like blood testing, I may look at a blood count. I might look at a metabolic panel because there are things there that can contribute to symptoms of fatigue. Although I would say that those tests are uh, most often going to be normal in somebody showing up with this kind of issue. When I say metabolic panel, that'd be like kidney, liver function, things like that. Um, other things that I would consider would be thyroid function, uh, um, in some situations, uh, testosterone uh, evaluation, hypogonadism. Um, and then there are, you know, the other, the other thing, and this is kind of where the time course comes into play um, that I'd want to know is there's a bunch of infections that we should be thinking about in this situation. So I think about metabolic issues and infectious issues, for example, HIV, other kind of viral things. So if somebody had new onset severe fatigue, could they have something like mononucleosis, for example, as a cause of that? Whereas that would fall away as a likely cause if somebody's had it for, you know, months or years or something like that. So, um, that's kind of would be my initial mental approach and which of the, I wouldn't necessarily fire off all of those things all at once, but rather I'm going to prioritize them depending on some of that other additional historical information I get. And if somebody gives me a clear sign that points me to a particular one of those over another, then I'll prioritize that, right? So if I get a very clear history of just, you know, new onset, major life stressors and trash sleep and things like that, then I'm probably going to, you know, not pursue all of these other biomedical things immediately up front. Whereas if they're telling me they have a history of this fatigue and a whole bunch of rashes and like lymph nodes that are popping up and I'm like, oh, this could be like HIV or something. Let me go chasing that. Right. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of the initial way that I would do this. And you notice that I'm not just doing one simple test and saying, oh, this is just, a, just anemia or just checking testosterone or just doing one thing. It's rather a, a lot of possibilities that are getting weighed by a variety of variables that I'm getting from the patient's story, because that context is really important to, to sort through this. Yeah, the story is going to kind of shape your thinking about, all right, what are the most likely things to be going on? And what are the most serious things that could be going on that I need to make sure they don't have? And then in addition, you're going to do a physical exam, and you might notice some things that kind of, again, uh, we'll say sharpen the spear in a way, like, you know, narrow what you end up sending. And so on a physical exam for somebody with uh, anemia or iron deficiency, what are some things that you could actually see that would sort of lead you down that pathway thinking like, hmm. I'm worried. I'm worried about this person having anemia. 
Yeah, I would say that the physical exam tends to not be the most useful in this situation. You in, in severe cases where somebody is so anemic that they are visibly pale, uh, that's something that would definitely get my attention. Or if they have, you know, unexplained bruising, you know, across their body, that might lead me to suspect that they have some kind of predisposition to bleeding and they could be bleeding from someplace and that could be leading them to become anemic. Um, hair issues, alopecia, um, nail changes, they can get like spooning of your nails. These are all stuff that were taught in medical school. But the it, number of times where I've seen a patient and determined that they had anemia because I looked at their nails is uh, not common. Um, and I think in some ways that is a luxury of operating in, you know, a well-resourced environment. Maybe I would use that more if I practiced elsewhere, but at the same time, uh, it, it is imperfect in that if somebody does not have those things, it does not rule out the possibility that they could have iron deficiency. So there are some general things for anemia, just pallor, you know, being pale in general, pale skin, pale, you know, uh, uh, eyelids and inside their eyelids, pale, you know, under the tongue, pale skin creases, things like that. But that's still pretty imperfect for, for diagnosing something like this. Yeah. Yeah. I think about like some of the physical exam findings are like, they've been either romanticized due to like historical accounts that may have like revisionist history done to them. Like, yes. And then I noticed that the nails of this particular patient had a slight cup to them. Yeah. And that's when I knew they had anemia. And it's like, wait, <laughs> yeah. what? No yeah. other signs or symptoms? Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, in the olden, in the older days when there was, you know, less medical care in general, it, people tended to show up to care a lot later and in much more severe states of disease. So there are a lot of physical exam findings that we are taught where it was like, this worked better a long time ago when people showed up really, really, really advanced disease. But now that they're coming in earlier, things can be a lot more subtle and you can't necessarily rely on that quite as much as more objective testing. Yeah. All right. So if you're going down, uh, you're ordering some labs for somebody you suspect to have anemia, um, what is the sort of initial blast of labs that you're, you're sending off? Obviously you're sending a blood test, but what are you like page in the lab about and saying, hey, do these things. Yeah, so a complete blood count is going to be the first and most common test for this, where you're looking specific, most usefully at the hemoglobin measurement, although there are a variety of other parameters uh, looking at the red blood cells, things like what is the volume of the red blood cells, what is the variation in their size, what is the concentration of hemoglobin within the red blood cells, all of these can point, point you towards a diagnosis, for example, of iron deficiency or further away, meaning that there might be another explanation for the anemia. Um, there are even other, you know, changes that can happen to the other cells like the platelets and things like that that can be affected here. But the other thing to consider is what is the, I, I almost would vary what I would test based on my practice setting. Um, if I was in a clinic versus if I'm working in an ER or hospital setting, because the kinds of conditions that show up with anemia to those different places will vary. So in an outpatient setting, when somebody's, you know, walkie talkie feels good, other, other than maybe some, some anemia type type issues, you know, the most common things that you might look for after you talk to them about their, you know, dietary intake and potential blood losses would be something like an iron panel, maybe measure their vitamin B12 level if they're confirmed to be anemic. Um, and potentially a few other things related to thyroid hormone, et cetera, et cetera, depending on what other things they're telling you they have going on in a, in, in a more, you know, sick, uh, setting, um, there's a, there's a measurement called a reticulocyte panel. And that can basically tell you, is my body making enough red blood cells to try to compensate for this anemia? Um, because as you mentioned that the top causes in the world are iron deficiency, the problems with hemoglobin, and then are you destroying your red blood cells? And this kind of a test, um, can help you to differentiate between these, or does this patient have a problem with their bone marrow or something else? Overall, you know, for the kind of people who are listening to this podcast or, you know, people who are dealing with routine outpatient issues of, of anemia, 
I would say the most common things to check after you find somebody to be anemic on a blood count would be something like an iron panel. Potentially a vitamin B12 level would be the, some of the simplest initial uh, measurements to do. And when I say an iron panel, that's something that comes with a few different sub-measurements. It comes with something called a ferritin, a transferrin, a, a, a saturation, and a serum iron level. And again, I said, like I said before, I generally would just discard the serum iron level for the vast majority of situations and pay the most attention to the ferritin measurement and to the saturation. Um, and so a ferritin measurement, um, again, like, like I said earlier, the cutoffs there are going to be kind of frustratingly controversial and they're also tricky to, to interpret. So if somebody has a ferritin level of like less than 10 or 15, I mean, I've seen, I saw a patient a few weeks ago who had a ferritin of like one, um, that was, yeah, and I, and actually surprisingly enough, this was a, this was a male patient, but, um, that is objective, extremely severe iron deficiency. Um, that's somebody who I, you know, initiated treatment for right away while also hunting for where they were losing all their iron from. Um, some labs, it might cut it off at 15, 20, 50, something like that, depending on where that cutoff is. I would, you know, I, I start to pay the most attention definitely when it's let, when it's less than 20, but if somebody has symptoms that all clearly fit, um, this kind of a condition, I might still treat them for iron deficiency, even if the, their ferritin is significantly higher. And this is for a few reasons, because I think there's some variation between people, but additionally, when patients have conditions that lead to inflammation. Uh, that can cause the ferritin measurement to be high. And so it can be high. You can you know, have a falsely elevated ferritin measurement when somebody has inflammation. That can be because they have an infection or heart failure or kidney disease, liver disease, all sorts of inflammatory conditions, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, whatever the case is. So your ferritin might not be as easily interpreted in which case I'll still look at the transferrin saturation. And when that saturation is less than 20%, then I'm still very suspicious that they have iron deficiency and I'll be more inclined to treat them as if they have iron deficiency, even if that ferritin is super, super low. And so this is kind of a, a, a tricky thing that can come up in practice, particularly with patients who have other medical conditions going on at the same time as this anemia, um, in that those other conditions can influence your ferritin, which in other, in, in non-inflammatory situations would be the best test to use to diagnose iron deficiency, particularly when it's super low, less than 50, definitely less than 20, uh, you know, unequivocally if it's less than 15 or 10, it just in terms of increasing severity, that's how I would kind of go about that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, that's helpful. And, and again, I think people should take away, like when you're ordering labs, it's not just, you got one shot at it. You're, you're doing this in a stepwise process to try to, again, go through the complexities of the patient based on their story, based on their exam, and based on additional findings. And so you don't need to order this big shotgun approach, you know, where you're ordering 30 different things. Because at that point, you're going to find something weird and you're like, I don't really know the relevance of this. And so, yeah, yeah, you're doing it piece by piece in an intelligent, systematic sort of way. Um, okay, so somebody's found to have iron deficiency anemia. What what do? What how do you how do you treat it? You just go out and eat more iron containing foods? Like what's the what's the deal? I mean, that may that may be helpful. It may be insufficient to resolve it, and it will definitely be insufficient to resolve it if you have not found the cause of that iron deficiency and address that. So for you know uh, you know, it's, it's, I suppose some would argue that it's unlike us doctors to care about root causes of things, but here we are, uh, looking, looking for them. But in other words, if somebody's bleeding from someplace, you can eat and take all the iron you want, but you're going to keep bleeding and that's going to be an unaddressed, you know, cause. So you need to stop the bleeding and then you'll be, you know, can, can normalize. So first and foremost, recognizing that again, iron deficiency, super common, uh, 
can cause a lot of issues, but is not a final diagnosis. You need to figure out why is this happening. In, in some situations, it can be due to dietary deficiency, uh, inadequate dietary intake. In the U.S., I am very, very reluctant to blame somebody's iron deficiency on inadequate dietary intake just because uh, it is not as common here compared with uh, in other areas of the world. And there are potentially dangerous causes that I would not want to miss uh, just by assuming that it's, oh, you just need to eat more iron. Um, even though that might be the logical conclusion somebody might make if they got their own labs and their iron was low, they said, oh, I, just, I guess I just need more iron, right? I did this testing and I found my nutrient deficiency. Well, you could die from from a from a colon cancer that was not diagnosed if you if you went that route. So first, before anything else, really, I'm thinking about why is this happening and uh, initiating appropriate investigations for that. That might be other kinds of lab testing, imaging, or doing endoscopies. You know, looking in the stomach and esophagus, looking in the colon, looking for sources of bleeding, things like that. As far as treatment goes, though, replacing iron. Um, whether we find a source of bleeding or not, we do want to replace it. And so the two ways that we can replace iron is uh, either by mouth or through IV. And so by mouth, there are various oral iron su uh, kind of supplement formulations uh, because admittedly, it can be tough to get a ton of it from diet, especially when we absorb a relatively modest amount of it. And so taking oral iron, a, a very common formulation is ferrous sulfate. There are a ton of other formulations that in general have not demonstrated any you know, superiority over something like iron sulfate. So I don't really go for super advanced formulations. One thing I would explicitly recommend against somebody use if they're going to be on oral iron supplements is any form of enteric coated or like delayed release oral iron supplementation. And that's just because, as I mentioned before, iron tends to be absorbed in the first part of the small intestine. And if it is specifically coated, protected from getting broken down, delayed release, it'll just swim right past that part of your intestine and not get absorbed as well. So no delayed release enteric coated formulations. Otherwise, a regular old oral iron supplement, usually something like 325 milligrams of a ferrous sulfate supplement, contains about 65 milligrams of uh, elemental iron. There is a bit of a downside to these in that about 10% of patients can develop constipation on these oral iron supplements, although that proportion varies depending on how it's being dosed. Um, I went through training and, and we were taught to give people, you know, 325 of ferrous sulfate three times a day to people, in which case I would expect a much higher rate of constipation to happen from that. Since then, people have decreased that quite a bit to taking it either once a day, sometimes even every other day, and that seems to mitigate that effect quite a bit. And then the last comment I'll make about oral iron supplementation here is, well, two. One, in very severe iron deficiency, it is unlikely that oral iron supplementation is going to be able to normalize things. This will take months to, to help to hope to build up people's or, uh, uh, iron stores. And so if somebody has severe deficiency and they have symptoms from it, I tend to try to push for IV iron. Um, this can, there can be difficulty in accessing this in certain health systems and certain healthcare settings. Uh, but again, the, I would not expect to put somebody on oral iron once a day or every other day and then, you know, like a, like a course of antibiotics, like a, a week or two later that their iron's better. This is going to take months and it may never get better, particularly if they have issues with absorption or if they have a bleeding issue that is not being addressed. You ever just tell people like, Hey, uh, yeah, so they're going to put you on oral iron. You just tell them you're constipated. You're throwing up all the time. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and just try to try to get, cause the IV stuff works a lot faster, but yeah, as you mentioned, um, there can be various problems accessing those things. Insurance is like, eh, they got to fail the oral iron stuff first. And it's like, I don't really agree, particularly seeing a reason to like have this person go on for months now that we've identified they have iron deficiency anemia. There's no actively, we've resolved whatever underlying issue there is. And so in order to make them feel better and, and buff the chart, God, we want to buff, <laughs> yeah. buff, buff the chart so the levels look normal. Yeah. Let's yeah, get that other. IV stuff. 
yeah, especially with how common this is. I mean, you mentioned like at least half of, you know, adolescent, you know, female athletes. I think I feel like adolescent females in general are at high risk of this. And again, besides just the oxygen capacity, you know, exercise performance, there's all these like cognitive effects that have been demonstrated, school performance, all sorts of other things. And it's like, I think that this is pretty under recognized and under treated. And if you just put somebody on oral iron and never actually fix the problem um, because they don't take it, because they get constipated and stop, because they're, you know, bleeding faster than they're taking it in, um, then you're kind of not doing great by by your patient. And so um, the IV, you know, iron replacement is something that I use actually pretty commonly. Fortunately, I'm in a place where I have uh, relatively easy access to it. It's super effective. It's very safe. It's super efficient. There are a variety of different formulations of this, some that need to be given over the course of a few days, some that can be given in an hour, some that can be given a big slug of it in 15 to 30 minutes, which is what I tend to tend to do. I can, you know, top somebody off with all the iron they need in, in half an hour or, or less, which is which is pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, that bypasses the gastrointestinal tract, uh, which is valuable for two reasons. One, um, given that it does not cause constipation because there's nothing going into the gastrointestinal tract. And the other is that I had mentioned earlier how inflammation can mess with your ferritin measurements. The other thing that inflammation can do is it can actually impair your absorption of iron. So patients who have inflammatory conditions like chronic kidney disease or who have heart failure, cirrhosis, these infections, autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, that inflammation it leads to uh, change in some of the proteins that are being expressed in the in the in the gastrointestinal tract. Um, one called hepcidin, in particular, that reduces iron uh, absorption. Uh, and so, when you have inflammation, you will not absorb uh, iron in the uh, you know oral and gastrointestinal route. Uh, in the same way that it messes with your ferritin measurements, it'll mess with your absorption of iron. So, giving somebody who has an inflammatory condition, oral iron supplements will not only constipate them, it will uh, uh, definitively not work to treat their condition. And so they need IV iron replacement if they are iron deficient. So those are some of the benefits of IV iron is if somebody has severe symptoms or severe anemia, where I'm like, I'm not going to be able to supplement fast enough to build them back up if they can't tolerate it by mouth because of constipation. Um, or if you have reason to believe that oral absorption is going to be impaired, for example, from any kind of inflammatory condition, those are situations where I would jump for, for IV iron. Um, I actually did a consultation with a patient a few months ago who, um, you know, a, a woman who had had iron deficiency anemia for months and she had been tried on oral iron supplementation. Um, and then her doctors periodically would repeat it and her iron, you know, tests did not look much better. And they just said, you know, keep taking your iron supplements. And she had symptoms uh, from, from what I could tell of this iron deficiency. And they just said, eh, just keep taking the oral iron. And I think that this was for a few reasons, but one of which is that, you know, it's still taking a bit of time for some outpatient uh, clinicians to get more comfortable with uh, recommending, ordering, put working through the process to get somebody IV iron. And so by the time she talked to me, I just uh, uh, very strongly recommended, I was like, you need to get another opinion. You may need to go all the way up to a hematologist if the general pr practitioners are not, you know, up on this or comfortable with this and get a dose of IV iron and that will kind of top you off. And then we also need to talk about making sure that there's no source of ongoing blood losses or, or bleeding or something like that that could be that could be causing this. And so that was a, a very common kind of situation that I would, you know, uh, chat with a patient about and make some make those kind of recommendations for them yeah just tell them to lie to their doctor <laughs> <laughs> well, i'm so nauseous i'm yeah. constipated am i my and i'm symptomatic and my levels aren't getting better yeah. fix me yeah <laughs> no I, I think i think obviously this is a complex topic not only anemia in general but iron deficiency treating lab workup things of that nature but uh, hopefully uh, if you're still listening to this 90-ish minutes in, um, you found this to be helpful. Uh, so just a kind of a little summary here. 
Anemia is super common, like a quarter up to maybe a third of the entire world's population has uh, anemia. The most common cause is iron deficiency, but not all anemia is iron deficiency anemia. Again, as Austin has reiterated multiple times, that is not the final diagnosis. That's not the end of the road. Got to figure out why somebody is iron deficient. It could be due to diet, but not really in the United States. Not very common there, but it is possible. Um, we got to look for other causes for why somebody might be iron deficient. And you just got to explain that. And once you're satisfied with that explanation, you can move on to treatment. Signs and symptoms of anemia or iron deficiency without anemia are nonspecific in general, and that tends to require an adequate workup that needs uh, sort of professional management. So 10 out of 10 would recommend working with your primary care physician and or specialist as needed. Uh, iron homeostasis and regulation is very complex. Anybody who claims, oh, it's just this particular aspect, uh, unlikely to be the case. And as, again, the interesting thing we covered in the middle of this podcast, sort of this HFE mutation may be advantageous in sport and potentially life, particularly endurance sports. All right, that is a wrap on episode 241 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. Shout out to Dr. Austin Brocky for joining me as always. And before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Oh,